we're coming now toward the end of the journey we've been on in the life of Abram. It's part 11, actually, of a 12-part series, which we'll finish next week. And I hope you've been encouraged um, in God's Word as we've been learning together from the life of Abram what it means to live by faith. Last week, as we looked at Genesis 21, we found Abram and Sarah laughing. Uh, They had been laughing years before. The very idea that God could give them a child in their old age, but now their, their laughter was a, a laughter of joy. They had discovered that with God, nothing is impossible. Back in chapter 21, verse 8, we read that the child grew up and was weaned, and that on the day Isaac was weaned, Abram held a great feast. Abram's throwing a party, and why wouldn't they? All his dreams had come true. Everything he'd been longing for all those years, God keeps his promises, gives him the son. He has everything that he had ever wanted. And as you're reading the story, you're imagining, well, he's had all those trials, all those hardships. He's waited all those years. He now has what he wants. And he and his wife, they're going to live happily ever after. And then we read Genesis 22. It's one of the most famous and troubling chapters in the whole Bible. It raises tough questions for us. What kind of a God would instruct his servant to sacrifice his only son? What kind of a man would obey that kind of instruction? How will all of this affect Isaac? These questions and many more have troubled readers of the Akedah That's the Hebrew word for this passage. It's the word for binding, as in the binding of Isaac. Troubled people for for centuries, for as long as we've had this text. When Kierkegaard wrestled with this passage, he said at one point that while Abram arouses my admiration, he also appalls me. So we've got difficult questions when we read a a Bible passage like this. And I want you to bring those difficult questions along with you. Don't don't be afraid of them. Don't park them anywhere. Just bring them along as we come to look at this part of God's word. I'd like you to notice three things in this passage this morning, that God is testing Abram, that Abram is trusting God, and that God provides the sacrifice. So first of all, notice that God is testing Abram. Look at verse 1. Sometime later, God tested Abram. Although God doesn't, although Abram doesn't know it, everyone reading this story from the outset knows that this is a test. And that matters. It really does matter. It makes all the difference in the world to how you read the story. You see, our God doesn't require human sacrifice. If I had time, I'd take you to Genesis or Jeremiah 19, sorry, a passage where God's commanded his prophet to pronounce judgment on the people. He reads a long list of charges that God has against Israel, but Jeremiah includes this, listen. They have built the high places of Baal to burn their children in the fire as offerings to Baal, something that I did not command or mention, nor did it even enter my mind. So the God of Israel doesn't require 
human sacrifice. He never has and he never will. It's unthinkable to him. But Abraham doesn't know that. He lived among the Canaanites who sacrificed their children in the fire to Baal. So whatever's happening here, it isn't God desiring to see Isaac killed. It's, it's God testing Abram's faith. Throughout the story, we've seen God, haven't we, time and again, testing Abram, allowing circumstances which will stretch him, test his faith. But this is the severest test of all. He's testing his, his commitment to the covenant relationship that these two have entered into together. For a parent to kill their own child is unthinkable. That goes without saying. Whenever John Calvin preached this passage, he said, it was sad for Abram to be deprived of his only son, sadder still that this one should be torn away by a violent death. But by far the most grievous was that he himself should be appointed as the executioner to slay him with his own hand. The death of an only son meant the death of an entire family, a complete catastrophe in that culture. But even that doesn't capture the enormity of what God's asking Abram to do. Remember the story. He's asking Abram to kill the child of promise, the one who's been waited for for 25 years, we think. 25 years, Abram and Sarah have waited for God to give them this promised son. And then, by a miracle, a 90-year-old Sarah gives birth. For 10 or more years now, Abram and Sarah have been living the dream. They've rested secure in the knowledge that no matter how hard it all was back then, it's good now, and it's going to be good in the future. But then this. Take your son, sacrifice him as a burnt offering. It's heartbreaking, and the narrator not only wants, he doesn't want to sheathe you from the heartache, he, he actually plunges you right into it. Look at verse 2. The command isn't just take the boy, it's take your son. Ten times in this short story, the narrator refers to Isaac as Abram's son, this insistent repetition, it's just to, to bind the, the father and the son together and to make us see what, a, what an awful test this is. It's not take one of your sons, it's take your only son. The narrator doesn't anonymize Isaac, depersonalize him to, to soften the blow. He gives him his name, Isaac. And then, just in case we miss it, God finishes the reference to Isaac by saying, whom you love, I know, the Lord says, that you love him. And that all just goes to highlight the severity of this test. God is testing Abram, and tell me this, do you know what it is to be tested by the living God? Have you entered into a relationship with him yet 
so real and so deep that he moves to test you and to try you and to show you through the hardest trials that your faith really is true. That's what's going on here for Abram. For years now, God's been asking him to trust him for a son, and and Abram's tried to do that, and God's blessed him, and he's given him laughter, but still God wants more. God's been asking Abram to trust him, to give him the thing in all the world that he most wants. And now that he has it, God's asking him to trust him in a deeper way still by giving up the thing that in the world he most wants, his son. It's the severest test of all. Friends, many years of serving as a pastor have led me by now to the conclusion that we know nothing about the quality of our faith when we're winning, when life is easy when the wind's in our back, when everyone's for us and smiling along with us. It's when everything is stripped away. Even the very good things that God has given us. That's when we learn about true faith in God. God is testing Abram Perhaps as you hear God's word today, you're conscious that he is testing you. Notice too, a second thing, that Abram is trusting God. We get a sense of this, I think, right through the whole passage. Verse 1, when God calls him, he replies very naturally, here I am. Here's Here's a man who lives his life before the Lord. It's very natural to to just say, yeah. Here I am. There's an intimacy here. He hears God and he responds. And we see this quite a lot in the the Abram narrative. Abram's been developing a a closeness, a, a relationship with God. God calls Abram his friend. So whenever God commands him to sacrifice his son, we see that he sets about the task immediately. In verse three, we're told that the preparations begin early the next morning. If that was me, I wouldn't be in a hurry. I'd be procrastinating. I'd be making my excuses. Immediate obedience. It's characteristic of Abram. Time and again we see him. When he learns what God wants for him, he does it. His response is immediate, but it's, he doesn't rush. It's not impulsive, blind obedience. This journey, it takes three days. Can you picture that? You're never more alone with your thoughts than when you're walking. Three days trudging through the wilderness alone with his thoughts. Three sleepless nights tossing tossing and turning with this unbearable command. Abram, take your son, your only son, Isaac, whom you love. Sacrifice him as a burnt offering. He's struggling with that command. And yet he stays on the long lonely road of obedience every step along the way faith being forged deeper in him 
We see that Abram's trusting God, but I wonder what he's expecting God to do. What does he think is actually going to happen here? I don't know if you'd noticed it as we read this story, but, but Abram doesn't expect to lose Isaac in all of this. Verse 5, have a look. He's leaving his servants to make the last part of the journey alone with his son. He instructs them, stay here with the donkey while I and the boy go over there. We'll worship and then we will come back to you. We will come back. Now, I'm going to say, I'd always imagined that he was scamming them. That he was telling his servants what they wanted to hear so that they wouldn't be unsettled. That he was saying it in, in earshot for Isaac so that he would uh, be happy to keep going with his father. But a couple of New Testament passages show us that that's a poor interpretation. Turn with me to Hebrews 11, page 1209, if you're using the Bible in the pew. Hebrews 11, page 1209. The writer to the Hebrews in, in this chapter is giving us kind of like a hall of fame of people who've lived by faith. And Abram, he gets the biggest amount of, of airtime. He is Mr. By Faith. Notice what the, the writer to the Hebrews says about these events in Genesis chapter 22, beginning at verse 17. By faith, Abram, when God tested him, offered Isaac as a sacrifice. He who had embraced the promises was about to sacrifice his one and only son, even though God had said to him, it's through Isaac that your offspring will be reckoned. And then we get the explanation. Abram reasoned that God could even raise the dead. And so in a manner of speaking, he did receive Isaac back from the dead. Wow. So Abram's reasoning goes something like this. Lord, you've given me this boy. You've given his life from my almost dead body, from the, the dead womb of, of my wife, Sarah. If I do as, as you say, if I sacrifice my son, I know that you can give him back from the dead. I know that you'll keep your promise. In Romans 4, Paul interprets Abram's faith like this. He didn't waver through unbelief regarding the promise of God, but was strengthened in his faith and gave glory to God, being fully persuaded that God had power to do what he had promised. Do you see what Paul says? He says that Abram was strengthened in his faith, that he gave glory to God. Even now, even with this severest imaginable test, Abram knew something deep in his heart. He knew that God was not his enemy. He can't be. He won't ever be. He has called me and he loves me. In this climactic episode, we see that Abraham has learned to trust God finally, fully, and for everything. Friends, I wonder, are you learning to trust the living God? Are you learning to obey him, 
to live for him, even in those moments where his commands and his leading make no sense at all. Have you learned like Abram that so long as you are in Christ, God is not and cannot ever be against you. He is not your enemy. He is your friend. I suppose I'm asking you to the, the big question that, that's at the heart of human existence, and that is, can God be trusted? Now, that's the question. Always has been, and it always will be. It was the question Adam and Eve faced when they were in the garden, and every human being with them ever since. Can God be trusted? If I obey him, if I live for him, will I find life? Or can I find more life? by refusing him and denying him? That's the question. To the extent that we trust God, to the extent that we put everything on the altar for him, to that extent, along with Abram, we'll be strengthened in our faith and we'll learn to live for his glory. So Abram's trusting God God had been testing Abram. Abram's trusting God. Notice the third and greatest thing of all in this passage. God provides the sacrifice. This passage from verse 6 onwards is like a masterpiece, I think, in dramatic tension. By the time we get down to verses 9 to 10, the narrator has slowed down to the point where he's describing every action, every action in detail. Abram built an altar. He arranged the wood on it. He bound his son Isaac and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. Then he reached out his hand. He took his knife to slay his son. The writer has no special effects to draw on, no dramatic soundtrack to drop in behind these events, but he succeeds in creating a scene where things unfold with high definition, slow motion tension, and it's unbearable. And at just the moment when Abram's about to plunge the knife into his son's heart, God interrupts, Abram, Abram, don't lay a hand on the boy. Don't do anything to him. Now I know that you fear God because you've not withheld from me your son, your only son. Do you remember? It was a test. Here we have the test result. God has set Abram a test and he's passed. We've heard God's verdict on Abram's faith, but let's focus our attention now to what God is doing in this passage. God provides the sacrifice. Now that Abram's faith's been proved, we read verse 13 that God no longer requires the sacrifice of Isaac. He provides a ram instead. We read that Abram sacrificed it as a burnt offering instead of his son. For those of us who are growing in our knowledge of this Bible story, this story of Abram will put them in mind of another story, another story that has a father and it has a son and it takes place on a mountain and it has a sacrifice. 
the points of reference are too many to ignore. The action in our story today takes place in Moriah. That probably refers to the, the area that once became Jerusalem. Many biblical scholars think that Abram's mountain is Calvary itself. Isaac is being sacrificed in the very same place where Christ would later give his life for the world. Like Isaac, Christ went willingly to his slaughter, not opening his mouth. Just as Isaac carried the wood for his sacrifice, so Jesus Christ carried his own cross. When Abram offers his son, God sees it as a sign of his commitment. He says, now I know that you fear God. When God offered his son for us, we see it as a sign of his love. Now we know that you love us. You have not withheld from us your son, your only son. Folks, with those many points of comparison, let me point out one great contrast. Abram's was a test. He didn't go through with what he was asked to do. God's love didn't require him to go through with the sacrifice of his son. When God's love for the world was put to the test, our sinfulness and his holiness meant that there was no other way. God the Father and Jesus Christ, the only son, went all the way. The sacrifice was made for you and for me. I want to spend the last few moments reflecting on a glorious truth. This truth that Jesus Christ has died for you in your place as a substitute. Perhaps you take that for granted that I would preach that. You shouldn't. There have been an increasing number of churches in recent years who have questioned whether Christ's death on the cross really was as a substitute for our sins. Some say, for example, that the main purpose of the cross of Jesus Christ is to defeat the spiritual powers that keep us enslaved. Others hold that Christ died on the cross as a demonstration of his love for us. Actually, if I'm honest, I'm glad for the debate because the Bible does say those things. It includes many different ways of talking about what Jesus Christ achieved by his death on the cross. I'll always preach them for you because I want you to be aware of the richness of the gospel. I want you to know them and live in the light of them. But I will say this. There's one dominant way in which the Bible talks about the death of Jesus Christ on the cross, and it's as a substitute for sinful people. It's a doctrine that's described as the penal substitutionary atonement. I don't do this very often where I use theological language, but today for a few moments I will. I will never stop preaching this message of the cross of Jesus Christ. Let me show you the three elements that make up this beautiful truth. First of all, we're claiming that Christ's death paid a penalty. 
That's why we say penal. Second, because Christ didn't deserve a penalty, he was paying it for others. It's substitutionary. And third, the result of Christ paying this price for others is that we are now forgiven. Atonement is made for our sins. I've called this a beautiful truth, and maybe it doesn't seem beautiful to you. I get that. I have an idea of the motivations of the human heart that make this feel very much other than beautiful. They go something like this. I'm not that bad. Surely any sort of a decent God wouldn't be handing any penalty to me. I'm an independent sort. Even if I'm in some sort of bother with God, I'd rather sort it out myself. I don't need somebody to act as my substitute. Sure, God's loving. He and I are friends. I, I don't need anybody to atone for me. And with hearts motivated in these ways, we resist this beautiful truth at the heart of the gospel because it requires of us the hardest thing of all. Do you know what the hardest thing of all is? It's to give up my pride. It requires me to say, yes, I am a sinner. I stand condemned before a perfect holy God. Yes, I need a savior, a substitute who'll pay the penalty for me. Yes, I long to be forgiven, to be restored to a friendship with God. We need to give up our pride. We need to humble ourselves and we need to bow before the cross of Jesus Christ. Maybe you sense God speaking to you today. Maybe you're wondering how to respond to what you've heard. Maybe you don't know what you would do with that. Maybe I can help by sharing a conversation I had with somebody this week. I shared the gospel with somebody uh, just a few days ago, something like what I've shared with you just now. As we came to the end of part of the conversation, the person said to me, what now? What do I do about Jesus dying in my place? And I said, well, if you want to respond to what Jesus has done for you, you simply talk to God about that. You pray. You tell him that you're ready to turn back to him and to put your trust in Jesus Christ. Would you like to do that? I said, yes. Okay, I can help you with that. I can help you think about what you might say to God. Let, let me lead you in a prayer that you could pray. Before we pray, let me tell you what the prayer might be, phrase by phrase. Listen carefully. If this sounds like the prayer of your own heart, then you can make this your own prayer, praying it after me. Here goes, here's that prayer. Father God, I thank you that you created me and that you gave me life. I confess that I've turned from you 
and sinned against you. I accept the penalty for my sin, his death. Thank you for sending Jesus, your son, to die in my place. Jesus, I accept you as my substitute. Now that you've paid the penalty for my sin, please forgive me. Restore me to friendship with you and the Father. Holy Spirit, I welcome you into my life. Help me to live the rest of my life, not for myself, but as a faithful follower of Jesus Christ. That's the prayer I shared with this person. I told them about. Would you like to say that prayer? I asked. Yes. And they did. And they gave their life to Jesus. Isn't that just brilliant? As you know, I always pray after I preach. And this morning, I'm going to pray the prayer that I've just prayed. Some of you are thinking, well, I've already prayed to accept Jesus Christ. I did it X years ago when X circumstances with X or Y or Z person. My sense is that you shouldn't be afraid to pray it again. To revisit the gospel. To remember with great joy the simple truth at the heart of your salvation. And for anyone who's never done this before, never yet committed yourself to Jesus Christ, if you sense his call today, then pray this prayer along with me. I'll leave a wee bit of space maybe after each line just to allow you to make it your own. Let us pray. Father God, I thank you that you created me and gave me life. I confess that I've turned from you and sinned against you. I accept that the penalty for my sin is death. Thank you for sending Jesus, your son, to die in my place. Jesus, I accept you as my substitute. Now that you've paid the penalty for my sin, please forgive me. Restore me to friendship with you and the Father. Holy Spirit, I welcome you now into my life. Help me to live the rest of my life, not for myself, but as a faithful follower of Jesus Christ. Amen. If 
you prayed that prayer for the first time today, be sure to talk to somebody about that. Somebody close to you who loves Jesus, somebody who can encourage you. Come and talk to me. I, goodness, I would sit here the rest of today and tomorrow to talk to anybody who's coming to know Jesus.